0: Thank you, Camille. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Daryl. I'm a grateful Al Anon. Um, I look at this sign back here, a bridge of recovery, and right now I kind of need a bridge across forever. <laughs> Someone to meet me on the other side. Um, I drove 350 miles today out of my own choice just so I could have a little time to myself after a chaotic week, and the only thing that I could get out of my mouth was, hi, I'm Daryl, I'm a Grateful (laughs) Al-Anon, so I'm going to turn this one over and ask for a little guidance and help on this. Um, And actually, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting down in the Plaid Valley, probably in the mid-80s, and there, whenever we had meetings, people said, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm a Grateful Al-Anon. And when I keep, I'm coming back to that because um, to be a Grateful Al-Anon person is a really passionate thing for me. Um, <laughs> I didn't think I'd get this emotion. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, it's a passionate thing for me because it has to do with recovery and I'm grateful to be here right now I'm grateful to be working a program in terms of my own recovery and uh you know what do Al-Anon people have to recover from after all they can fix everybody else's problems <laughs> tell everybody what they need to do. Um, Anyway, when Juanita called me up and said, Daryl, will you be a speaker? I said, no, no way. I'm going to be too busy. I have this to do and that to do and click. And then I went to an AA meeting with some women friends and support. And they were sitting there talking about how... um, It's funny hearing my voice on the speaker. They were going around discussing things about how they felt some guilt about not having enough time for their family or not taking time during, when they were drunk or something like that. And all I could do is sit there and think, well, I don't have that excuse because I wasn't drunk all the time, but I'm still always too busy for my family or too busy for this or too busy for that. And one of the things that's great about the program is, for me, it's a way of nurturing myself spiritually, a way of finding a, a means of which to connect and ground myself and do a reality check. And that's one of the reasons I'm also grateful. So I walked away from that meeting thinking, wow, if I'm gonna be that busy in another month, I'm gonna need some way to ground myself and do a reality check And So I'm here for selfish reasons. <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the things that I kind of like to do is um, ground myself is I like to stop, first of all. And when I stop, it gives me a few minutes to breathe. So I'm going to stop right now and breathe. <laughs> I never knew that I could breathe until I hit 40 <laughs> a few years ago. I was kind of like, okay, I can breathe. That's amazing what some deep breaths will do, counting to 10 or 12, like steps and taking some deep breaths. And it feels good to breathe. So stop, breathe. Look, look around me, be grateful for where I am, for, you know, who's in my environment, everything that's here. Um, Stop, look, and listen. Sometimes I need to close my eyes and listen to what's around me, listen to what's in my heart. Um, Stop, look, listen. And the last one is feel. That's not the last one, but it's kind of a way for me to get grounded. And the feel thing comes from, you know, feel what is in my heart, and acknowledge that and try to work through it instead of around it. Um, one of the things that al people do is we master the art of creating illusions around us. We make ourselves very busy, or at least I do. <laughs> and we create illusions. And one of the um, tough things about illusions is that eventually we have to break them down and deal with the reality. And that can be very disillusioning and sad a lot of the time. But that's part of the recovery process and why I'm grateful to have a program. (laughs) Um, Stop, look, listen, and feel. Um, Alcoholism is a disease that affects not just the alcoholic but the whole family. And I think that it affects us um, physically. It can make us ill. Even Al-Anon people get ill. It can affect us emotionally. We can do crazy things count the beer cans in the trash can, uh, drive around town trying to see what you're doing and what you're up to, trying to fix you, spending all this energy out here all the while thinking that we're just fine when really we have a lot of issues and things to deal with. Um, So emotionally, and the other um, way that we're affected is spiritually. And when I thought about speaking tonight, I thought, well, I really want to speak about spirituality. And then I thought, well, I need to tell my story. (laughs) And I thought, tell my story. Now, uh, which story should I tell? I feel like a cat that has lived nine lives. And, And I said to my sponsor, I said, but all of a sudden my story feels so insignificant because everybody else has a story that's just like mine. And my sponsor was good enough to say to me, well, it's not just like yours. It might be similar, but <laughs> yours is kind of your own story, and you've lived it, so that makes it a little different. And, and that's true. Um, we all have a story, and I can tell my story, but it's kind of my perspective, and somebody that was there at the same time might have a whole different story to tell. And I just want to have you keep that in mind, because whatever I might say, I don't ever intend to be harmful towards someone else. Um... I'm going to take a drink. My mouth is dry. Before I go too far with the stories part, um, when I think about alcoholism affecting families, when I think about physical things, I mean, it's taken me a long time to learn how to take care of myself. So physically, you know, it's kind of like a little reality check. Have I eaten well? Have I gotten rest? Have I gotten some exercise? Have I remembered to breathe? You know, those are really important things in learning how to heal and recover. Um, emotionally, have I, um, have I worked my program? Have I done what I need to do in terms of my relationships? Have I tried to um, act in loving and kind ways towards other people? And spiritually, I mean, I guess I've come to the point in my life where everything that I do, everything that I say, it is, is affects my spirituality and who I am. So that that's something that sort of has come after the fact. Something like that. Um, when I think about stories, I guess I think about uh, family secrets. I think the old AA thing is um, we're only as sick as the secrets we keep. Well... In families, there are secrets, and with alcoholism, there are a lot of secrets, too. And I'm going to look at my notes. I actually took a couple notes, and I think the reason why is, is because um, with alcoholism, when I say I feel like a cat that's lived nine lives, I think about... Um, the story, because if you 're someone who lives with alcoholism, then you 've probably lived with things like um, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, debt, prison, infidelity, sickness, and even death and one of the things I try to remind myself of is it 's good to have a sense of humor once in a while because <laughs> i don 't want to get too serious but um I used to be very serious as a young person because I didn't realize that life could be fun. And it is fun. Somebody in my Al-Anon group said one day, hey, I feel good. <laughs> and I was like, wow, it's okay to feel good? I never knew that. <laughs> so that was kind of a nice thing. Um, so I guess the story I want to tell, I don't really know what story I want to tell, but I'm going to start off with Um, when I was young and think about my family and sort of my heritage and where I came from because those are kind of the things that make me who I am now and and I appreciate that and I'm grateful for that. Um, I think about somebody said well what were the happiest times of your childhood and I think well it was when I was outside playing by the willow tree or underneath the willow tree making mud pies and they said well who was there with you? I said no one I was there by myself. So one of the things that happens when you grow up with alcoholism is that you're very isolated. But yet that was a happy time because it was safe. And that safety can be a real important thing. Um, Another happy time for me was, I was like five years old, I think. And this woman from Switzerland came to live or stay in our house for a few days. And she stayed in my room and we stayed up till like after midnight talking me, a little five-year-old. It was like the first time in my life that anybody actually thought that what I had to say was worth listening to. And she later married one of my uncles and I sent her this really nice thank you note and I said, thank you. You're the first person that ever counted me as a human being. And later on, she kind of became a safety net for me because it was a safe place to go and play and be a little girl and wear makeup and dress up and do all those kinds of things that were not safe at home to do. Because if I were to do those kinds of things at home and get caught, I'd be referred to as a slut or a prostitute or a whore or something like that, even at like five or six years old. Um, Breathe deep. (laughs) So I start thinking about, in my childhood, what were some things that really affected me? There were a lot, actually. There were some really critical things, though. Um, When I was like three years old, I had some illness, physical. here comes the physical part. A lot of illness. I um, suffered from urinary tract infections, spent some time in the hospital, and I can remember screaming and crying for my mother to stay. It's like, "Mom, stay, don't leave me, don't leave me." But she always left me. And even as a child, I remember looking around my environment and thinking, "There's all these other kids here that are sick, and some of them are dying and some of them. And it was really very depressing for even for a kid you know to be in an environment like that. And that was one thing that really stuck out in my mind. Um, As I got older, I started noticing that my mother had bruises all the time. And, you know, Mom, what happened? Oh, I fell down, or your dad had a bad dream last night and accidentally hit me, or, you know, that kind of thing. And there were the family parties of, oh, let's, you know, it's kind of, you know, a typical daily thing, you know, the martinis and the daiquiris and the scotch and, you know, it's like the liquor cabinet in our house was not only full all the time, but there was always backup bottles, so you never had to worry about a bottle being empty. It was always full. Um, another really tough time for me was um, my sister died when I was eight years old. And I was kind of like the last one to find out about it. And at that point, I had so much fear in me that I didn't have anyone to comfort me. And I can remember my dad trying to hug me and hold me, and I couldn't let go. I, I was not able to really grieve that loss at that time because I was already living in fear. And I can remember things like hiding under the bed, hiding in the closets at the end of the day, waiting for him to come home. And I also had a brother that was older than I was. And I think about, um, he and I were really close when we were very young. As we got older, we got more and more distant. But he took the rap a lot of the time. And it's kind of like the kid being upstairs and you can hear the beatings going on and there's nothing you can do. You can't help but feel guilty and feel bad and feel like it should be you and not them. And I felt that way about my sister when she died, like it should have been me who died and not her. Anyway, the story does go on, it does get better at some point. When I was about 14 years old, I was freed for a little while, and I went to live with a great aunt of mine out in California. She was 75 years old. And she was one of the funnest, most wonderful people I've ever met in my life. She could see that I was troubled and having a hard time, and all she would say to me was, I don't know what's going on with you at home, but I'm going to tell you something. And she said... Whatever it is that's not right with your life, you're the only person that can change it, and you are the only person that can make a difference. And I'll tell you, those words took me a long, long way. I grew up in a basic, you know, middle-class family. The dad worked, the mom worked, you know, the kids. We went to church every Sunday. Everything on the outside looked great. But I'll tell you what, I grew up hating religion and hating my church because... What kind of a God would put a kid into an environment like that where there were beatings going on all the time? What kind of a God would kill my sister? You know, all those kinds of things that most of you have probably lived with at some point or another. Um, But as I got older, I got faith somewhere. I don't really know where. Probably from people like my aunt that said, you're the only person that can make a difference and that can change things. Um, People like my friends that I have now that give me support and faith um, so traditional religion was really a turnoff for me on a spiritual basis. Um, when I was younger, I did grow up on the ocean. But, there, you know, there's little things that come with that, too, like the sound of the fog horn at 4 o'clock in the morning, or um, my husband gives me a bad time because I'm an incredible insomniac, and I always say, well... I'm an insomniac because, you know, when I was in college, I worked in the bars till 4 or 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning and had to unwind, or, you know, in the summers I work construction, so I'm up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I always have good excuses and reasons why I'm an insomniac. And, you know, realistically, I don't need a lot of sleep now, but the real reason I'm an insomniac is because, as a child growing up, I was always alert and listening for the sound of footsteps coming up the stairs, not knowing where they were going or what was going to happen and so I think as a kid you grow up and you in that kind of an environment and there are things that you do or learn just to survive and to protect yourself and after I spent that summer with my great aunt and came home, all of a sudden I realized that not everybody in the world was like my family it was like people in the world are different and this is a, kind of an interesting thing this is a weird story. I'm going to tell this one anyway. Um, one of the things I grew up with was be, I was basically stalked by my father. And I had a friend down the street, and we would um, sit up, and her her bedroom was on the second story, and it had a big picture window. And we would sit there in the evenings and kind of visit and watch the sunset. Well, all of a sudden, one night, we're sitting in these chairs, kind of visiting, looking out the windows, and We see the shadow the house was on a hill, so you could see the roof of the house below, and we see the shadow on the roof and i 'm like there's somebody on that roof. Turn off the light quick, so we turn off the light and we watched the shadow climbing on the roof. Well, it turned out that it was my father climbing on the roof of the house next door to find out what I was doing and that kind of became a constant thing. you know it was like there was always that you know always looking over your shoulder to see, is he there, is he there?" And that, you know, that can be kind of a tough environment to grow up in, but you can survive it. I have. <laughs> and it kind of brings me to, you know, where did I find peace as a child growing up? How did I get my solitude? And I grew up on the ocean, so I spent a lot of time walking on the beach by myself, a lot of time watching the water and the waves crash. You know, I see big, crusting waves come up. And, and it's amazing. I think a lot of my spirituality came from that water, I mean, movement of water really is a connecting thing for me. Um, It was just a place where I could sit for hours and be mesmerized by the sound of waves crashing on the shore or something like that. And for me, that was kind of my place of uh, rest and restitution. Um, Anyway, after that summer that I spent with my great aunt, I... uh, Came home and realized that the whole world wasn't like my family and started to realize how crazy and sick it really was. And I started to realize even more than that, how much danger I was in. And I decided that I was going to leave at 15 years old. And it's incredible if you have an instinct to survive, what you can actually do as a 15-year-old. I had the most perfect escape plan you'll ever imagine in your life. I usually headed out the door at 6 o'clock in the morning, hopped on my bicycle went to work at the restaurant down on the beach, and that was kind of my daily routine. So I knew that if I followed my daily routine, nobody would really know what I was doing. So at 15 years old, got up one morning, packed my backpack, dropped it with a rope out the second story of my bedroom window onto the ground, got on my bicycle like I did every morning as if I was heading to work, cruised down the road, hid my bike, hiked back up to the house, grabbed my backpack, and rode my bike down to the market a couple miles away, hid my bike in the bushes and locked it to a tree, called a taxi and hopped on a bus, and I was on my way three states away within hours. And I say that with some pride right now because I took a lot of grief for that from my family. I mean, my parents, of course, hit the roof, and you know the control stuff all hid in and kicked in. And But with some pride also in that... Um, I have to say something for both sets of grandparents. One set of grandparents were kind of like, oh, how can you do that to your mother? You're breaking her heart. Or how can you do that to your family? My other set of grandparents would say to me, I know that you have, the things aren't right at home. And if you need some money, if there's anything you need, let me know. Let us know, we'll help you out. So it's kind of like, you know, kind of pulled and twisted and turned in all different directions and I say that with pride and integrity right now because that is the single most important thing I've ever done in my life in terms of surviving. It really did help me to survive. And I'm glad glad I did it. I can look back here in my mid forties and say, it was really one of the best things I could have ever done for myself. Um, While I was gone, I think I was gone almost a whole summer. I wrote my parents like a 52 page letter saying, Trying to expose things and you know trying to make them confront their issues, which was kind of like beating a dead horse. Anyway, um, after that, I kind of went home. I thought, well, okay, I've opened the can of beans here. Let's go home and deal with the consequences and try to work things out. It was that was a stupid thing to do, but <laughs> I went home, and you know immediately I got this thing from my father that you know I was going to be confined pretty much to the house you know that he would take me to school pick me up from school that if i ever tried to do anything like that again he'd be sure that he would put me in a sanitarium um got this big long letter from him saying how it was all my fault that my mother had a brain tumor and you know all the all the stuff to make you feel like oh my god i have all this power and control over people i can make people have brain tumors just like that (laughs) but i actually believed it (laughs) that's the crazy thing about it um I ended up having to get a lawyer, an attorney, and because I knew within three days of being home that I was never gonna make it. And I went, got myself an attorney, found out what my legal rights were because I did not I did not trust my dad for anything. I didn't know what he was gonna do with me. And um, it wasn't long after that, it was kind of like, okay, now we're on the next escape plan. Where am I gonna live? I have to show that I'm working. I have to show that somehow I'm gonna finish school. And so I got myself a job, found myself a place to live. Um, My plan was to stay in school and try to work evenings and weekends to show that I could support myself. And of course, the first day I left, my parents got the letter from the lawyer. And next thing I knew, (laughs) my father was at the place I was working at, dragging me out by the hair, basically. And we uh, hop in the car, we hop in the car. He drags me into the car. And says he's taking me home. Well, we get to the end of this road and he starts turning towards the beach, which is a dead-end road. Breathe. (sighs) Um, And it suddenly became increasingly aware to me that I was in big trouble. And at that point, I didn't have enough faith and courage. I mean, I was absolutely terrified of what was going to happen. And I, you know, all the prayers in the world weren't going to save me at that point. But... I jumped out of the car while I was moving and ran down the road, and actually did that two or three times. And pretty soon, my older brother came along, and it actually took him beating my father with a billy club to get my father away from me. And we all ended up in the police station, and it was you know nuts and chaotic and crazy. And police were trying to tell me I had to go home. My lawyer was saying, no, these are her legal rights and she's met this, this, and this. And So then the agreement was, okay, we'll go to family counseling. (laughs) Well, I was like, we're going to their psychologist? And I'm like, no way, look what it's done for them. But anyway, I was afraid to go to their psychologist because I was afraid that my father, he was wealthy enough, he could have paid the shrink off and injected me with some drugs and stuck me in that sanitarium. He always said he was going to put me (laughs) (laughs) in. Anyway... I said that I would go as long as my attorney came with me. And I went to one session, met with my attorney again after that, and said, it's not a place I'm ever going to go again. And that was hard because that meant I had to really completely divorce my family, detach myself, and there were threats. I had a younger a sister that was eight years younger than I was, and I had to you know, pretty much well i had to take the threats of you're never going to see your sister again and you're never going to get this or never you know and it's kind of like i just can't do it i don't care take everything away it doesn't matter i don't want the money i don't want the college education i don't want any of it (laughs) um anyway i did go on i ended up my parents harassed me so much i had to move out of state and quit high school um, I didn't exactly quit high school because I had almost enough credits to graduate, but I went to night school and finished my, I actually did get my high school diploma. Um, later on, I put myself through college. Yay, I finished. I, first one in my family. Um, I'm not sure where I want to go right now, but Spirituality just started happening as I started healing and recovering. I think when I got into my mid-20s, I had a lot of stuff to deal with. And I think that, you know, at 15 years old, you become this mature, responsible person that says, okay, I have to prove to the court, number one, that I can take care of myself, that I can finish school, that I can do all those things. And so I did all those things. And so I was, you know, being the tough kid on the outside that could handle it and manage it Meanwhile, there was this, you know, other little kid on the inside that was pretty devastated and pretty crushed and had no idea how to, how to heal or what to do. So I I went, I think my first uh, semester in college, I had to withdraw a fail from every class (laughs) and I got myself into counseling. And that was a good thing because I had to deal with a lot of issues in counseling. Anyway, one of the things I've learned is, it's so easy to move around things and busy yourself in life, but, I, but it's really critical to be able to move through things and to move through your feelings. It took me a long time to really be able to express how I feel and feel okay about it, I mean, and not shake like a leaf and panic and all that kind of thing. So I'm a really fortunate person because I'm a survivor. Um, as far as relationships with men go, I've managed to screw those up pretty good. Uh... <laughs> I always wanted someone like my dad. I don't know why, but I always, you know, tend to tend to pick men who are emotionally unavailable. Um and I think somebody said to me, one of the things I should talk about, well what was the real turning point for you in terms of Al Anon or and I thought, you know, there wasn't really there weren't really any big turning points for me because My life was so black and white for so long, and now I'm trying to live it in color, at least in my own mind, which is a great illusion. (laughs) But, um, you know, there are never any great light bulbs that ever really went off for me and said, this is it. (laughs) Um, I'm going to take another drink, refocus here. One of the silly and stupid things I did in my first marriage is um, decided that I had to know that somebody could love me no matter how bad I was, that they could forgive me. And so, of course, I sabotaged the relationship and killed it in every way I could to (laughs) to prove myself really basically unworthy of being loved. (laughs) And I think as I came out of that divorce, um, I put myself back in counseling again and said, boy, I'm really screwing up here. i got to do something different. And I guess that was when I read the book uh, Cody Pennant No More by Melody Beattie. And I started reading things like do yell, scream, cry? I mean, all these things. I'm like, yeah, I'm always, to ch- I'm always trying to change somebody else to give me what I want. It never happens. It just doesn't work. So all my insane behaviors, I was acting out full, full stream in that relationship. And as I came out of that relationship, I started feeling like, Um, I started feeling really unloved. It's like, God, my father rejected me. Now my husband's rejected me. And it took me, I think the big light bulb there for me was that it wasn't somebody else rejecting me, but it was me rejecting myself by making bad choices or not making healthy choices. And so that, I, I had a lot of amends to make after that one. So I was kind of working a program, but yet not really. And then I started going to Al-Anon. I was actually uh, working with a teen theater group on you know, drug and alcohol awareness. And I thought, oh, well, let's go to some AA meetings and some Al-Anon meetings and kind of get some education and information for these little skits we're gonna do. <laughs> well, next thing I knew, I was uh, sponsoring an Alateen group and I hardly even knew what it because I really screwed up a lot. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, I guess from a, a spiritual standpoint, one of the things that's kind of happened to me by living in Wyoming is I got more connection with water. <laughs> you know, I, I became a kayaker and floating the river and all that kind of stuff. And um, I always think about... The river can be something that's really a peaceful thing if you're sitting on the banks looking at it or getting a refreshing swim, but it also can be an incredibly turbulent force. And... um An upside-down underwater can be really turbulent, and you have no control at all. (laughs) Control? What is that? Anyway, um, I always think of this Richard Bach story. I think it came from the book Illusions. Imagine that. But it talks about, you know, this village that suddenly this torrent river comes and people are drifting afloat and they're trying to cling to rocks and hold on for their life. And this one guy decides, well, I'm going to let go because I can't hold on anymore or, you know he got this notion in his head that if he let go, that he was going to turn up somewhere okay. And guess what happened? He let go and got tossed around by the river and then eventually he ended up on this sandy beach. So sometimes, I think one of the really hard things to learn is what do we hold on to and what do we let go of? And trying to balance those forces in life of letting go and holding on and trying to... Oh, that's a tough one. But anyway, the river for me has really had, and water has has kind of been a real spiritual force for me in terms of. I actually stopped yeah, on my drive today uh, in Thermopolis and looked at the river for a while because I thought, oh, that'll help me a little bit. <laughs> but it's kind of like it diverges, it splits, and it always comes back together at some point and empty. This is kind of you know the empty out in the ocean thing, and then the whole cycle starts again. But for me, when I've ever really felt lost and astray, I can go to a place like that and I can feel strength just from the current, just from watching it, just from being there. And I think when I look at the wholeness in life, I kind of realize um, that people are that way too. I mean, in some ways we're all connected. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go here because... One of the really hard things for me to learn as an adult was I didn't have to surround myself with people that were unhealthy or negative to be around. It took me a long time to learn that it feels good to surround myself with healthy people and to pick healthy people for friends and a support system. Um, And the other thing I think that's really been helpful to me is I know what fear feels like. And... When I make choices in my life from a position of fear, then my life becomes chaotic. I feel really insecure. I start getting nervous. I start worrying. I start, you know, it's like all this stuff just goes haywire. On the other hand, when I make choices in my life from a position of love, then um, then it feels good, and it feels better, and it feels healthy, and it feels okay. And I try to challenge myself... Um, there's a couple other things I just want to talk about, like detachment is a real important thing for me because for me detachment is kind of like getting distance, separating myself, and it allows me to love more strongly. It allows me to see things more clearly. And it's kind of ironic that um, the theme has to do with being a bridge bridge of recovery because the other thing that's real important in my life is discipline. And somebody says, discipline, what's that? Well, for me, discipline is, is kind of creating a structure because I need to work a program, and that's kind of my structure. And I can't have a bridge, and I can't have a ship to sail. I can't even be on a journey if I don't have that structure. And the only way I'm going to get that is through discipline, whether it's working a program, whether it's making a commitment to take care of myself physically, emotionally, spiritually, all those kinds of things. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling again, aren't I? <laughs> Um, so then, so then, I got to a point in my life where it felt like, okay, I can make healthier choices about people. Um, I started to recognize all the things I didn't like about myself in terms of being, a, you know, the critical person and the control freak and all that kind of stuff. That, that's something I'll work on the rest of my life. But um, there's things I'm grateful for in my life. And that is, um, I'm grateful for the disease of alcoholism because it's done, a couple things have happened for me. Um, Number one, it certainly taught me how to set limits and boundaries in my life about what is okay, what is not okay, what's safe, what's not safe. and that's a good thing because whenever things go crazy I'm like okay where are my limits where are my boundaries and that's part of the discipline issue too is you know where are the limits where are the boundaries and setting those and being really firm with them Um, there's other reasons I'm grateful for um, alcoholism in my life and that is because well it's led me to this program and some really wonderful people I'm grateful for that um, I'm also grateful because um, I can continually challenge myself. I've gotten to the point where okay, I know how to surround myself now with healthy people, but how do I take how do I take it beyond that? When how do I look at adversity in a way where I'm not looking always at the shadows? where, I mean, it's kind of like in resentments, it's kind of like in adverse situations, it's really easy to look at shadows and resentments. And so I'm kind of trying to work on things right now from a spiritual basis of how do I look at not the shadows? How do I look at the light in things? How do I um, count things for, you know, quit looking at people for what they don't give, look at them for what they do give, what they can give. And that's a really important thing for me. So, as I look out into this audience, I think to myself that, or even my father, that person who was such a monster to me at some point in time, you know, it's not about me forgiving somebody else, it's a lot about me forgiving myself for being so judgmental and so harsh. And I'm stumbling again, but that's okay. (laughs) Um so as I look out into this audience you know we all have our stories and, but we're all connected and we're all part of that bridge towards recovery and we're all here to help each other out and and I appreciate that and we're here to celebrate too and in terms of celebrating life um, don't just celebrate me when I'm weak or when I'm hurting or even in your own life but celebrate when you're strong as well because it's all that weakness and hurt and it's all the hard times that have made you what you are now and those are the things to really celebrate in terms of strength and anyway I guess I better quit because I'm starting to ramble Um, thank you I appreciate being here tonight I appreciate that you've listened I don't know if any of this made any sense but I hope there's a piece of it you can all take away and if not (laughs) it was great being here anyway Um, And I would encourage you all to turn around and reach out to somebody that you don't know and just share some peace. Thank you.